The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, August 1st, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Starfish. 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 You know how when you say a word over and over, it stops being that word and starts to take on weird amorphous properties? Starfish. Starfish. We are now playing this on a presidential level. Trump has a bad temperament, lacks the temperament to be president. Temperament. Donald, what do you think of the critique of you and your temperament? I have one of the great temperaments. I have a winning temperament. She has a bad temperament. She's weak. I think I have a great temperament. 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 I might have a certain temperament. I'll look into that temperament question of temperament. But some people say temperament. But it's not only temperament. It's sacrifice. Sacrifice. Captain Khan's parents asked Donald Trump, what did you sacrifice? Trump answered. I think I've made a lot of sacrifices. Uh, I work very, very hard. I've created thousands and thousands of jobs, tens of thousands of jobs, uh, built great structures. I've done... I've had I've had tremendous success. Uh, I think those are sacrifices. Oh, sure. I think they're sacrifices. Sacrifice. I sacrificed my temperament. I temperament sacrifice. Sacrifice temperament. Also wore Muslim ban and crooked Hillary. Thank you. I accept the nomination. Melania nude. Beautiful. Considered beautiful in Europe. What? Temperament? No, not temperament. Melania nude. Not offended. Beautiful nude. Although, have you noticed? Temperament, temperament. Have you noticed? She wasn't pixelated. Well, actually, if you look really close right there on the nipples, pixelated, so it's okay to be on the newsstand, might have sacrificed some cells, sacrificed, I'm okay with it. Why? Temperament, temperament, starfish. On the show today, we borrow Kazir Khan's constitution and play Have You Ever Read This Thing? But first, the latest news out of Guantanamo is that Mamadou Slahi has been recommended to transfer out. The military said that last week. Slahi has been incarcerated for 13 years. His diaries indicate that that was due to a series of misunderstandings, willful misinterpretations, and bureaucratic intransigence. He was also subjected to harsh treatment. We know what his diaries say because the once classified materials were published, written with the help of Larry Seams, who I spoke to over a year ago, and now we hear that conversation for the first time. Guantanamo Diaries, the first book written by an actual prisoner in the Guantanamo Bay detention base, not a former prisoner. Mohamedou Slahi is still there. His case has been wending through U.S. courts. He was, according to one Guantanamo prosecutor, a Forrest Gump type. Not meaning dim, but in the wrong place often. I actually think Zelig is the better comparison, if you remember that Woody Allen movie. Yes, he was a Mujahideen fighter and an Al-Qaeda loyalist in 1991, but at the time, the U.S. was funding the Mujahideen. In 2005, he wrote this diary longhand, and the details of his 
detention are harrowing. He was beaten. He was deprived. He was subject to mock execution in the Caribbean Sea. But the story of how this book came into being is also fascinating. We'll get into both of it with Larry Seams, who is the editor of the Guantanamo Diary. Thanks for coming in, Larry. Thanks so much for having me. How'd you come to edit this? Well, as you say, Mohamedou wrote the book in 2005. He was emerging from this really brutal special projects interrogation that happened through 2003 into 2004. So he wrote the book in 2005, and like everything that's produced by a Guantanamo detainee, every utterance, every creation of any kind, it was deemed classified from the start. He was giving it to his attorneys through the summer but they would have to turn it over to a classification team and it would end up in a locked facility outside of Washington, D.C. And there it sat for about six and a half or seven years while Nancy Hollander and Teresa Duncan and the rest of his legal team conducted litigation and negotiations to get the manuscript classified and then cleared for public release. I finally got the manuscript in the summer of 2012. Now, for the previous four years, from about 2009 to 2012, I had been working with the ACLU on a project called the Torture Report. Mm -hmm. They had gotten declassified about 100,000 pages of government documents uh, that detailed prisoner abuse in Guantanamo, Iraq, Afghanistan, the CIA black sites. And my job was to sort of go through those documents, also heavily, heavily redacted, and find stories, you know, sort of stitch together narratives. Was that report different from the one that Dianne Feinstein's committee released, or was there overlap? No, it, it was different because I was looking only at the declassified documents and looking at all of the agencies. Her report, of course, looked at classified material that the CIA still has and presented a report that specifically focused on the conduct in the CIA black sites. So through that process, one of the characters who emerged most clearly from the, from the documents is Mohamedou Ulslahi, who was one of two quote-unquote special projects interrogations in Guantanamo. And this means... Above all, that it's incredibly well-documented what happened to him. There was a written interrogation plan that went through several drafts, and then there was meticulous record-keeping in the bizarre way of torturers throughout history about how that plan was executed over the course of a year. And those documents are summarized in throughout the documentary record, but in two documents in particular, a 2008 uh, report from the Department of Justice's Inspector General that was prompted by FBI complaints about abuse in Guantanamo and Iraq, and a report by the Senate Armed Services Committee, which looked at abuse in military detention sites in Guantanamo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Both of those documents have a number of pages specifically devoted to Mohammed's interrogation in which the treatment that you suggested or mentioned is well detailed. So yep. by the time I got the manuscript in 2012, I knew the basic outlines of his treatment and his large... And that also, by the to interrupt, that also seemed to serve to... I mean, that had an effect of confirming a lot of what is just, you know, a first person or can be assailed as a subjective first person account. Here you have the government commenting on the exact instances and you found time and time again that he was accurate. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it has to be one of the reasons why the document itself was declassified in 2012, because much of the information that they would otherwise have argued and up until that point, no doubt did argue was classified information, state secrets, um, had emerged in the government's own documents. So they could no longer suppress this manuscript, sort of a personal account of things that were already well-established in the documentary record. So for me, one of the first impressions when I got the manuscript was, 
how incredibly closely it tracks with the documentary record. I mean, astonishingly closely. Yeah. He's an amazingly accurate recounter of his own history. Which is remarkable for at least three reasons. One, memory is fallible. Two, they were torturing him, so that could mess up with your recall. And three, he'd be motivated to present things possibly in a different way or in the harshest to exaggerate, to make him seem like more of a victim. You could maybe argue he didn't have to, but he didn't do that. No, absolutely. In fact, he says at one point, you know, he has just simply tried to recount his experience. I've tried neither to exaggerate nor to understate. I think, if anything, he understates if you look at the documentary record that exists outside of the book. But, you know, I think the he's a remarkable storyteller and a remarkable writer. And like good storytellers and writers, he's always drawn outside of his own story. So his account, his narrative ends up being much more than a litany of, you know, of, of relentless abuse, which is what he was subjected to. It becomes, I think, the first ever full portrait of life inside of Guantanamo and in a much larger kind of global gulag of interrogation facilities because he was held and interrogated in a number of countries. When you got the manuscript, did you just have to accept every time they put a black bar through a word, even if it was through three pages? Was there any appeal of that that you could do? No, absolutely not. These were absolute redactions, but at the same time, anybody who reads a redacted document goes through a process of just trying to figure out through context, you know, what's what's going on here and what might be behind those, you know, those redactions. And you have this whole parallel record. Yeah. And, you know, when he's describing a scene, for example, where he's dragged into a room and a cold room and they have, you know, strobe lights and they're playing Let the Bodies Hit the Floor you know, for hours and hours, the, you know, we've heavy got, metal song, I think system of a down. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, but we have in the Senate Armed Services Committee report, a description footnoted to a specific memorandum for the record by his interrogation team, which gives the actual date of that particular scene. So he's try he t- tells the dates that things happen. Those dates are often redacted, but yeah. you know, we have the government's documents and sure, there they I, are. Just, I couldn't believe this one. Someone incorrectly tells him that he'll soon be united with his family, and he says, I couldn't help breaking in redacted. As you note, what could that be other than tears? Well, and read the next it sentence. It can't be song. Yeah, he's, and the next sentence he says, you know, I, I don't know what's, what's happened to me. I, I can't help but becoming extremely emotional, you know. Yes. The slightest kind gesture has me crying. So, I mean, it, that must be the word tears, but it's just yeah. like, you know, I wonder if at that moment the government censor realized you know, how powerful that moment was and just had a reaction about trying to suppress that very human moment. How is editing this different from all the other jobs you've taken? Well, actually, it really interestingly for me, it was a, a, a process because I couldn't, I had no contact with him. I was and and the lawyers. To... Now, his lawyers did read the unredacted diaries, but you couldn't talk we to couldn't them about ha- it. I could have no communication with them about that because, of course, they're bound by this, you know, very strict security protocols that allow them even, you know, to they, – they must – abide by these things mm-hmm. or, or they will not be allowed to meet with their clients. And yeah. so, and, know, a, and the U.S. has prosecuted lawyers who have passed information they said on to and given tough sentences to lawyers who've, you know, helped clients or well, broken it, that, those rules. Yeah. yeah. So that was a, that was a, a very clear fire, firewall. I did make one specific uh, official request to meet with Mohamedou when I had finished a draft of the edit and I received the same very terse reply that every journalist and writer who's ever petition to speak with a Guantanamo prisoner has received, which uh, cites the Geneva Convention's prohibitions on making prisoners into, quote, public curiosities. You know, and I don't need to comment on the 
the irony of citing the Geneva Convention's protections in in Mohamed Uslahi's case. So, but so you know, the process of editing was one of really listening to this absolutely compelling voice, you know, coming to trust it. You know, trust was established because his account accorded so clearly to the documentary record. But then I began to really appreciate the literary scope of the book. I mean, I, I think in the introduction, I talk about the resonances of of the Odyssey. He has this 20,000-mile journey through interrogation and detention facilities, which doesn't result in a homecoming, but he keeps being shipwrecked in some way. In and also, even though, even though you also mentioned that, because even though English is his fourth language, he has about the, the expanse of his vocabulary, the number of words, pretty much tracks with home, Homerian epics. For instance, every cell he lands in, he he ends up with a little thin mattress, and he just use, he uses the phrase a thin, worn, hundred-year-old mattress. You know, that's a very Homeric kind of touch of that yeah. kind of formulaic phrase. I, I began to recognize more and more the sophistication of his storytelling. He'll move from general from to specific. He'll move back in time to find examples of the point that he's trying to make, and uh, quite elegant. You know, and and you know he has all the other great aspects of a, a really good writer: great eye, a tremendous ear for dialogue. You know, empathy, curiosity. Uh, a great sense of irony, great sense of humor, a fantastic sense of beauty, all of those things. There's one moment where he describes betraying under pressure an acquaintance of his in in Canada. He's forced to offer testimony against him, manufacture something against the guy. And he's shown a picture of him. The the, the guy is in INS detention in Florida, and he showed a picture of him in a prison jumpsuit. And he says, you know, whenever you see a guy in that Bob Barker, Calvin Klein jumpsuit, you know that's not a happy guy. And, you know, then that phrase, Bob Barker, Calvin Klein. Calvin Klein I got. Bob Barker, I was sort of like, well, why the allusion to Bob Barker? You know, uh, yeah, Price is Right. Price uh, that's is right. right. Yeah, I, I price thought is Price is Right. right. Yeah. And I sort of, in a lazy moment of editing, I just sort of set that aside. And so, I, you know, when I brought the manuscript to the first editor that I worked with, this great guy, Jeff Chandler, Jeff said, well, what does he mean by Bob Barker? And I said, I, I don't know, some, I'll, I'll figure that out. And, and Jeff says, hold on a minute. And he turns around and he taps in, you know, Google search. And Bob Barker Incorporated is the largest manufacturer of prison uniforms in the United States. Not that Bob Barker. <laughs> so it was not, not that Bob Barker. And it was best, a very yeah. literal, yeah. exact detail, you know, which I, so there was that kind of level of just accuracy. And then another one, which was a very interesting moment, was there's a bit in, the, in that scene where he's being sexually assaulted and by these two female interrogators and he's refusing to eat sort of doing a mini hunger strike and at the end of the scene he quotes one of an interrogator who says uh, you won't starve we're going to feed you up to your ass is what he wrote up to your ass and as you know we did excerpts of this first originally with slate i had a conversation with the, the editorial team here at when when we were looking that and the question of whether what whether what did that two mean yeah you know was that like a I said, oh, it just, you know, he, English is his fourth language. He has trouble with prepositions. He has a very funny bit at one point about difficulty of prepositions in English. I said, it's superfluous. He just means up your ass. And then we went back and forth, you know, well, could it be metaphorical, like some kind of level, how high we're going to feed mm-hmm. you? But never for a moment did I assume, even when we arrived at and decided, yes, it's, it's, up, to, it's up your ass, even that I assumed was just a kind of a you know, expression. Yeah, shove because, it down your throat. Exactly. I know guys Take who talk, it, we yeah. all know guys who talk like yeah. that, you know. And then, and then the last month, out. we get the Senate Intelligence Committee report on the CIA. And lo and behold, that was 
verbatim a threat that he would receive. Rectal feeding, as yeah. they euphemistically called yeah. it, which has nothing to do with feeding. So he was picked up, actually volunteered to go with Mauritanian police about a month after uh, 9-11, a little more than a month. Since then, this must be the biggest exposure that his family has had to him. Have you had any reaction from them, people close to him, having read it? Yeah, I, I'm, I just, you know, the book launched here in, in, in London on, um, on January 20th and around the, the launch, Nancy Hollander's lead attorney and I were there along with Mohammed's youngest brother, Yadi, who lives in, in Germany. And it's, you know, this is an enormously important and emotional moment for the family. Yadi lives in Germany speaks fluent German. He's a German citizen, um, an immigrant to Germany. He has spoken publicly repeatedly in Germany and in Mauritania. He goes back and forth about his brother's case. He's a very vocal advocate. Never once has he been interviewed in an American press, although he's been accessible the whole time. And it's like, I found out a story that I, I tell in the introduction that, you know, had not been reported that when... He, you say he turned himself in for interrogation in November of 2001. He'd been questioned several times, got another call from the, di- the director of state security. Come on in. We need to question you one more time. Drive your own car. We're only going to keep you a couple days. And, of course, he goes there. The Mauritanians hold him just for about a week just while the U.S. arranges for a Jordanian rendition flight to come and pick him up, send him to Jordan. And so begins this incredible odyssey for an entire year. His family, quite a poor family, was bringing food and clothing to that local prison in Nouakchott, Mauritania, and giving it to the guards for his upkeep. And nobody told them that he was thousands of miles away, first in Amman, then in Bagram, and then in Guantanamo, until Yadi, almost a year later in October, Der Spiegel, uh, ran an article about German-connected prisoners in Guantanamo. And it ended with a paragraph that sort of an image of Mohamedou in a wire cage in Guantanamo. And that's the first the family knew about it. And Yadi described to me his anger, not at the U.S. principally, but at the Mauritanian kind of thieving local police. And he called his family and he was irate. And the family was so panicked because they were afraid their phone calls were monitored and they kept hanging up on him out of sheer terror. But just that story, you know, you read the documents and you think about what the prisoners were experiencing. And through his book, you get a look at the cost that this is extracted on the men and women who are doing these things. But, you know, behind this, this whole world of families and communities that radiate out from this that we've never allowed ourselves to even imagine or think about, you start to hear them in this book and it's extremely powerful. If he's released, will he see any money from this book? Yes. There's a trust fund that's been established and I should rephrase that because the trust fund, he has set up a trust fund um, through his attorneys for the benefit of his family. Yeah. But it's not used to pay his attorneys. No. Yeah. Not at all. No, it's entirely for the benefit of his family's. Guantanamo Diary. The diary is written by Mohamedou Slahi. It's edited by Larry Seams. Thank you. Thanks so much. And now the spiel, Kazir Khan asked Donald Trump a question, and then he quite helpfully offered to lend him a document, a foundational document. Have you even read the United States Constitution? I will, I will gladly lend you my copy. 
Donald Trump took this offer as an accusation. He said that Mr. Khan said, I never read the Constitution. Actually, Mr. Khan did not accuse him of that. He was asking the question if he had. Trump also said of Khan's wife, Captain Khan's mother. His wife, uh, if you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. Actually, she was, but overwhelming grief does tend to get in the way. Grief, it's a human emotion. That's not anger or rage. John McCain, the veterans of foreign wars, the Gold Star families, all quickly condemned Trump's statements, though a Muslim ban is favored by a very slight majority of Americans. But is it constitutional? To know, you'd have to read the Constitution. Trump says he has. Have you? Let's play our quiz to see if you, like Donald Trump, has read the U.S. Constitution. I'll read different selections from different constitutions. One will be the U.S. Constitution. The other will be maybe a state constitution or a national constitution or a civic constitution, perhaps the Hendricks College Chicken Club Constitution or the Burry Tandem Bicycling Club Constitution will be cited. Here we go. First issue, judges. Suitable salaries for the judges are fixed by law. Judges cannot engage in other occupations during their tenure of office. Or, the judges, both the supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation. Or, judges can receive a payment of $25 per occurrence. Or finally, The justices of the Supreme Court and the judges of other courts shall at stated times receive a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office, but they shall receive no other fee or reward for their services as justices. Which one is the actual United States Constitution? The answer, the second one. The first one was from the 1964 Afghan Constitution. The $25 payment was from the Suncoast Camera Club Constitution, and that last selection was from Maine's state constitution. On to the next. Ooh, this is my favorite category. Quorums, or perhaps quora. Here we go. A majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business, but a smaller number may adjourn from day to day and may be authorized to compel the attendance of absent members. Or... A body established by or under this constitution may act even if there are one or more vacancies in its membership, provided that the members of the body who authorize or perform this act are a quorum, or a majority of the total number of members then in office shall constitute a quorum for the transaction of business, or... One half of the members of a committee shall constitute a quorum. If a quorum is not present at any of the above meetings, no business can be transacted. Which was the actual U.S. Constitution statement on quora or quorums? It was the first one. The next three in order were from the Zimbabwe Constitution, the National Offices of the Little League Sample Constitution, and the Saskatoon Lions Speed Stating Club Constitution. By the way, the Arundel Camera Club only requires one-third of its membership in good standing to constitute a quorum. Next, let's talk science, people. One, strengthening the spirit of inquiry, investigation, and innovation in all areas of science, technology, and culture. Two, 
promote the progress of sciences and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Three, aspiring to a society enjoying stability, tranquility, and justice, which developed through science and culture, achieves prosperity and sanitary well-being. Which one? Actual U.S. Constitution. It was the second one. Promotes the progress of sciences and useful arts. And the two science-endorsing constitutions on either side of that were the Iranian Constitution. I cut it right off at the part where they said, as well as Islamic studies. And the Libyan Constitution, the newly crafted Libyan Constitution. All right, here we go. Oh, this is one of, my, one of the most exciting parts. The words, is tried being interlined between the 32nd and 33rd lines of the first page, and the word the being interlined between the 43rd and 44th lines of the second page. Hmm. Or, dissolution, the organization shall not dissolve as long as there are 20 active members. However, should the number fall below 20, the remaining members may make charge of the affairs of the organization and dispose of the same in accordance with federal law. Or three... The amendment must be seconded, then a vote will be held. Any amendment that receives a two-thirds vote shall be deemed as passing. The secretary will record the vote and change in the Constitution. Which one's from the actual Constitution? Well, it's the first one. All the, all the parts about the and is tried being struck here and there. The other two were the Hershey Bears Booster Club. I believe they're a minor league hockey team. I, I will not quote from Article 13 of their Constitution, Small Games of Chance. And the last one was from the Hendricks Chicken Project Constitution. I will, however, read the purpose of the Hendricks Chicken Project. The purpose of the Hendricks Chicken Project is to maintain the chicken raising operations located on the Hendricks College campus. I will also read the clause in that constitution on dissolvement, dissolution. Should the club be dissolved, the following order of possible care solutions for the chickens will be considered. One, the president will take some or all of the chickens. Two, members of the club will take some or all of the chickens. Three, members of the Hendricks community will take the chickens. Four, the chickens will be sold. And finally, the last clause. It's about vice presidencies. Here we go. Section three, vice president, the vice president shall perform the duties of the president in the absent or disability of the president. When so acting, the vice president shall have all the powers of that office during the absence of the president. Or here's the second one. In every case, after the choice of president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be the vice president. And here's your third choice. The vice president shall have the duties and exercise the powers of the president in the case of the president's death, absence, or incapacity. Which ones from our actual constitution, law of the land? Well, it's kind of a trick question because the answer is the second one. However, the 25th Amendment supplanted that clause, but it's right there in the constitution. The first one was from the Triborough Little League Constitution and the last one from the Bernays Mountain Dog Club of America Constitution. So that's it. How'd you do? Do you beat Donald Trump? Do you need to borrow someone's constitution? We the people demand to know. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson produces the gist, and she cites the Estonian constitution, quote, no one shall be subjected to medical or scientific experiments against his or her free will. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is drawn to the Bhutanese constitution, quote, 
the dragon that fully presses down. The fimbriation symbolizes the name of the kingdom, which is endowed with the spiritual and secular traditions. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is drawn to the Constitution of Mongolia, which claims that the Constitution shall become effective and enter into force at 12 hours on the 12th day of February of the year 1992, or at the hour of the horse on the prime zeal and auspicious good ninth day of yellow horse of the spring month of black tiger of the year of water monkey of the 17th 60 year cycle. I'm going to go with 21292, but that's just me. Me, meaning the gist. We will end by quoting Saudi Arabia's constitution. Citizens shall pledge allegiance to the king on the basis of the book of God and the prophet Sunnah, as well as on the principle of hearing is obeying, both in prosperity and adversity, in situations pleasant and unpleasant. Umpuru de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>